0: I think it's fair to say, this is not your typical election. I-, I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves
1: me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to.
0: Honestly,
2: she's guilty as
1: hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know,
0: I-, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny.
1: I know more about ISIS than th- the generals do. No, Donald You don't.
0: Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We
1: need a political revolution.
2: Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which
0: is why I
1: alone can fix it. USA! USA! USA!
3: From The New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. When Donald Trump went to Mexico for a seemingly spontaneous meeting with the country's president, I was struck by his suddenly nuanced diplomatic tone. The man who was saying this about Mexicans throughout his campaign They're
1: bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists.
3: Was suddenly saying this. They are amazing people. Amazing people. But then, a few hours later, he was in Arizona delivering a speech on immigration policy and sounding as dark and antagonistic as ever.
2: Task Force focused on identifying and quickly removing
1: the most dangerous criminal illegal immigrants in America who have evaded justice, just like Hillary Clinton has evaded justice, okay? <laughs>
2: Maybe they'll be able to deport her.
3: It's total whiplash. The kind, I think, that comes with the kind of impulsive behavior we sometimes see in a particular variety of politician. Most often, I'll just say it, men. Not infrequently, from New York, who love social media. Can you think of any other politician who fits that description? Can I think of many? I
2: mean, (laughs) do you want me to narrow the list or go on and on? Maybe
3: to another... (laughs)
2: Well, you know, I mean, you say that, I think, of Anthony Weiner. If we leave New York, you know, someone we don't talk about much anymore. But let us never forget John Edwards, who I think fits into this fraternity very, very well.
3: That introduction itself was kind of impulsive because I want to pause now and say that I'm here with the great Frank Bruni, the columnist for The New York Times and a longtime political writer and thinker and the dean of campaign reporters, my colleague Maggie Haberman. And we're gathered here to talk about two forces that have both inspired and alarmed us in political life this year, impulsiveness and narcissism. Frank, you've just written about this topic. It seems to me that we love these politicians until we don't anymore. What is it that we're so drawn to and then suddenly seems to go wrong with them?
2: Well, I'm not sure who the we who loves them are. I mean, we in the media love them because they tend to be very good and eager performers. but I think performance is key here. To get to a certain point, to get to a certain level of success as a politician in the current context, with the cameras on you all the time, you know, with social media, with all of this 24-7 attention, you have to be able to to be a bit of a performer and you have to be up for being a bit of a performer. And that requires a certain amount of loving the crowd, a certain amount of narcissism. That's sort of almost like the kind of price of entry, but that also comes with a whole bunch of other traits that are often destructive to a candidacy, self-destructive to a person, and end up giving us a whole lot of stuff and showing voters a whole lot of stuff that is not so savory and not appealing in the least.
0: I would totally agree with that. New York in particular, I think, has bred a certain number of candidates who are Quite like this, because a lot of this involves being media malleable, especially cable news malleable. So we've seen that with Anthony Weiner. We've certainly seen it with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is unique in this respect because he is a fantastic performer, as we know, just in terms of political theater, and yet he's incredibly anachronistic in a lot of ways. And yet one of the one of um, his his cultural references are all sort of preserved in amber of the 1980s. So there's you know he's one of the things he loves to talk about on the trail is I've gotten my fourth cover of Time magazine. Right. And the crowd looks right. at him like what's you know, sort of with, with, with slack jaw. But an area where Trump has been incredibly adaptive, and I think it really is because Trump is specific in this respect in a way that we've seen. Weiner has some of this as well. There is a certain ADD quality mm-hmm. to how they go about their their performance or performance art, depending on how you want to describe it. Trump really is the master of the 140-character yeah. attention span. And, and so I think that that has worked very well.
2: The other thing that's interesting that both of them have had their uh, more than interesting experiences with Twitter is that form of social media in particular gives you instant gratification, Absolutely. yeah, dopamine, and the, yeah, and the exactly. person and the person who has no impulse control is also the junkie for instant gratification. Yes. Trump sends out one yes. of those tweets, yes. and then he watches how often it's retweeted. Like yep. he often quotes those numbers. Yes, Weiner sitting there at home feeling lonely and wanting someone to adore him and his groin. Um and the only way you thank can make you, that Frank. happen in a nanosecond, thank you. I thought you'd appreciate that image. I'm sorry. how else are we supposed to
3: talk about this? It, I, right? I, I we don't need that's to what, what he's it. sending out through Twitter. Yes.
2: Um, Twitter gives them this very thing, this need for that dopamine, this instant gratification. I think it raises enormous questions, disqualifying questions about both of them as potential leaders or as actual leaders.
3: Perhaps it's disqualifying, but we love them until the minute they somehow disqualified themselves, didn't we we enjoy them
2: or or are entertained by them until that minute. I mean, there's a big difference between what is interesting to behold and what we want to be governed by. And what comes along is a point where, if we didn't realize it from the outset, we realize, wait a second, you know, this is all great fun and games, You know, Donald Trump kind of standing there insulting people at the, at the debate, until we really have to reckon with the fact that he's the nominee and has something like a 50-50 shot, maybe not in his case, of actually being the one in the Oval Office signing legislation, working with Congress. And then it becomes a whole different deal.
3: And Maggie, I want to go back to our shared experience covering City Hall, because this started in the case of Anthony Weiner a long time ago. You broke all those stories. Why has it taken so long? What was the turning point, and were we blind to it willfully for a long time and we liked it enough?
0: I think Frank had a really uh, smart point about how... Uh With Anthony Weiner and with Trump, who are sort of the perfect avatars for this, they're entertaining. So we like what we see. Everybody, if you think about Trump, just to take it away from Anthony Weiner for a second, but there is an analog. If you think about how Trump went through the primaries, everybody thought it was hilarious when he was making fun of somebody else. Oh, he's mocking Jeb, low energy. The the Lindsey Graham cell phone episode. episode. I
1: don't know if it's the right number. Let's try it. 202.
0: Whoa, I can't believe two, what eight, will he do next oh, two, nine, until he goes know, after you, you know, or me so or whomever two. or entire races of people and an entire religion. And it's not so funny. And I, I think that in the case of Trump, but it is true of Weiner as well, people have tried to rationalize what they're seeing. For instance, when Trump had that episode at a rally where he had that aside about Second Amendment people taking matters into their own hands about Hillary Clinton, somebody in our newsroom uh, came up to me and one of our colleagues and said, I think he just has a strange sense of humor that is really just sort of like, you know, your your grandparent or your whatever. And, and other people have made this point to me too. Sure, um, maybe, but it's sort of at a certain point, it's like people trying to say, well, do you think Trump is really a racist? I get that question a lot. I don't know, and what does it matter? I can't speak to what's in his heart. What matters is the words that are coming out of his mouth are offending people and are inflammatory. And so I think that people have wanted to rationalize or contextualize Trump uh, to fit a prism that we've seen before. And I think that was true with Weiner too. I think it was we want to look at this as the redemption story. And he's entertaining and he is smart and he is funny, and he does have things to say, but it doesn't obviate the fact that he he took a reprehensible picture with his son um, oh. and, and sent it out to a stranger. Over Twitter.
2: There's a flip side to our rationalization of it, which is the smart politicians, and I think both Weiner and Trump fall into this category. They know how to market what I would say is a pathology as something else. So, this lack of discipline, this sort of like rapaciousness, they market it to voters as passion. And as authenticity. Yes. So yeah, Weiner's a big hot mess. Yes. All the stuff you chronicled when you covered him, but boy, that's a sort of passion and fire that have trained the right way, have channeled the right way, you know, toward political action. It's gonna you he's vote, gonna be yes, a fighter believe, and an yes. effective one for me.
3: You vote in favor of something you will believe it's the right thing. If you believe it's the wrong thing, you vote no. We are following you know, a procedure. Will I will not yield you know, to the kind of gentleman, and the gentleman, will, will, observe you know, the gentleman will observe regular order. The gentleman
1: will observe regular order.
2: In Trump's case, how often do we hear all of this described as refreshing authenticity? But I think we need to be really careful when politicians' handlers and supporters and spinmeisters are talking about it that way, not to accept it when in some cases it really is just pathology marketed as something much more purposeful. So the question
3: becomes, why are we so hard on someone like Hillary Clinton or Mitt Romney or John Kerry? We've covered all three of these people. Because they're dry because they're boring and they're safe. I mean, if we get the politics we deserve, why can't we embrace those candidates? Really well, I, think, I think it's a good question, but I think
2: if we're really being fair here, <laughs> Hillary Clinton has, has a set of problems that are different. Yes. And are we hard on her? Yeah, I think we're appropriately hard on her. She may not have the same problems, problems that are remotely similar to Donald Trump's, but she has another set of problems and there are actions that she's taken that warrant very close scrutiny and in some sense censure. And just because they're not the exact same problems that Donald Trump has doesn't mean we let them go.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. And what has emerged in the last couple of weeks in particular as the race has basically appeared to be frozen, you're hearing from Clinton partisans or liberal critics who are sort of on the lookout to yell false equivalents if you say anything critical about Clinton. And no, not everything is a false equivalence. Some things are. But sometimes she is just you know, worthy of scrutiny. I do think that with Clinton, some of it is gendered. I don't think it is all of it. But I do think there is a corner of it that is. But I by no means think that that's all of it. And I think that a lot of her supporters retreat into that corner when they want to say something is illegitimate.
3: Which brings me to the question, why don't we see impulsive women in American politics? Where are these... Sexism. Um, we, n- I
0: think. we don't see as many women in politics. Yeah. Period. So I think that's a big part of it.
3: But I think I think there are
2: certain personality characteristics or flaws that we're more willing to overlook or recharacterize in men, men than in women. I absolutely you know, agree. You've with heard. That. I mean, there's the stereotype of the bossy woman who's exactly like a man who would never be called bossy. In the same way, a woman without impulse control is flighty, is mercurial, yes. is hysterical totally to to agree with to etymolo- et- etymological roots. A man without impulse control is someone who just, you know, he just needs to grow up a little bit. He's a rake, he's, I mean, I wrote a column once about all the pejoratives we have for women who mm-hmm. are loose, and you can't find a single analogous pejorative for a man who's loose. And that sort of discrepancy exists across so many different kinds of characters. That's Does anyone exactly right. even come
0: close, Maggie? Any woman? Yeah. I don't think so. But I mean, I think that uh, I, I can't think of a politician who has sort of the same, you know, what we would characterize as, as you said, you know, sort of rakish irreverence that we saw in Trump for right. so many months before it became seen as something else or the same thing with yeah. Weiner. I think that women who are that way in politics or in, in life are viewed differently. Right. They are viewed as self-aggrandizing, yeah. ham-fisted, I look at somebody like uh, Mark Sanford, the former governor of South Carolina, who's now a congressman, I
3: can't think of a woman whose career would have survived what he went through well, at all. Yeah. Just for clarity, Mark Sanford for stepping out on his marriage and all the drawn-out drama of that? Absolutely. For stepping
0: out on his marriage, for weeping publicly at a press conference about how she was the love of his life. I mean, can you imagine lying a woman for lying about where for he,
3: lying about lying where he to For his, f- con- yeah, his, his
0: constituency, st- to his staff. I mean, I, I just think that, to be clear, it's not as if he went unharmed by this. See, there was plenty of pr- critical coverage, but... I try to, for all of these situations, think about what the analog would be if it was a woman. What would be the comparable situation? I can't think of anything uh, comparable, either in terms of Weiner or in terms of Trump, certainly. can't think of anything in terms of Sanford, and I cannot imagine a circumstance in which a woman's career would survive any of this. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's really simple. If there were a woman who was on a third marriage, as is Trump, um, and who had spoken publicly about how hot her son was. That's right. And how she might be dating her son if her son wasn't. I mean, That's excuse right. me, that dead in the water right there. Yes. Trump lopes on.
3: Yes. Maggie, I feel like we have to ground this in what happened in Mexico, which kind of inspired this episode. Here's a man who'd spent his entire candidacy railing against Mexicans, making virtually no distinction between Mexican-Americans, people who are here illegally, residents of Mexico. Suddenly he's with the president of Mexico who he's calling his friend, and he's praising the Mexican people. And then by nightfall, he's talking about the same subject in this incredibly different way, this dark way, right? Deportations, murders, America's in crisis. Was that a man in control of his impulses?
0: no because trump's impulses are to please whichever crowd he is in front of and to meld to whatever audience he is speaking to let me just take that back for one second Uh, there was this narrative that developed from original reporting the first reporting about that trip that was not done by us about how it came to be and it was exactly that. Ugh, oh, slapdash trip invited on Friday. He decided over the weekend that it, none of that is true. Um, yes, the formal invitation was issued on Friday, but it was issued to both candidates, and that was after weeks of Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, having these furtive negotiations. Um, Mr. Kushner, to be clear, has no government experience, no campaign experience, and he was negotiating with uh, heads of state about a foreign trip for weeks. This was going on for a month. So This is why I love this woman. we so get crea- the real story. It creates... <laughs> Thank you. It creates, but it created this narrative that Trump loves of quick on the fly, jet off to Mexico. So a lot of Trump is about packaging, number one. Number two, Trump is really able to read a room. So he was able to go and get this visual that they wanted, which was the side by side podium. Uh, uh, Peña Nieto gave him, to my mind, inexplicably a platform. Uh, Peña Nieto, whose own numbers are not very good in his country, but he's not facing re election. Um, And Trump realized that. The room wasn't warm, so he took questions, which he wasn't supposed to do. Uh, and it, to some extent, saved at least the visual for a few minutes, anyway, until you know, half an hour later, uh, Pananieto said that Trump had lied about what they discussed about paying for a wall, a border wall with Mexico. That evening, Trump goes to this venue in Arizona, which was very much like a rally crowd. And he was supposed to be giving what was billed as a policy speech. But he could feel the room, so he kept going off prompter. And he was revving up the crowd. And as he told our editorial board back in January, uh, he uses that line about building the wall and who's going to pay for the wall when he feels the energy sagging in the crowd.
1: Build that wall! Build that wall! Build that
2: wall!
0: Build that wall! And so he sort of helped whip them into a frenzy and it just becomes like a it's like a circuit it feeds back in it goes back out that's what he
2: does he's coming up with what he says and what then becomes his policy position based on how to get the crowd to make him feel good yes. Yes. instant right? gratification right. so this is this, is this is narcissism as a governing philosophy
0: the world for trump is literally a mirror yeah. i mean that is that is how he approaches it And to Anthony Weiner, to bring it back, there's something to be said for that as well. It's just that for Anthony Weiner, the the world is a camera, right? As opposed to a mirror, it's a camera on him. But it's basically the same impulse.
3: Yeah. So the sibling of impulsiveness is narcissism. I'm struck most by a scene, Frank, that you described in a column and that I saw, and I'm sure, Maggie, you did too, in the documentary about Weiner. And it's a moment where Anthony Weiner is home in his apartment in Manhattan, and he's watching and rewatching. A clip of himself mm-hmm. um, on MSNBC. Mm-hmm.
2: Anthony I think there is something wrong with I know with you just you. said that you and just I'm said looking, that repeating it doesn't make it any more interesting. Life. I'm looking at your life I'm looking well, at your relentless <laughs> pursuit you are relentless about some <laughs> about certain things in your life. took time off from God. And,
3: and Frank what did you take you from that because it's like the distillation and by the way I'm sure we've all watched each other on television so you know there before the grace of God but like what, what was that scene telling you about Anthony Weiner? It was
2: telling me that there is a brand of person, Anthony Weiner being the perfect example, for whom no attention is bad attention. You know, there's that kind of false maxim, no publicity is bad publicity, which is crazy, because a lot of publicity is bad publicity. But there is a certain kind of narcissist, and I think it's the definition of a narcissist, for whom no attention is bad attention. Anthony Weiner is living in the middle of a chapter of mortification that would send a normal human being into a cave in Siberia for a decade. But to him, it's fine because Lawrence O'Donnell is berating him. What makes that, first of all, the whole movie, the whole documentary, if I were teaching high school civics, I would make my class watch that documentary. I think it's that deftly done and I think it's that unbelievably revealing. What's interesting about that scene is not just the way Anthony Weiner is behaving but the fact that his wife is like, I, I can't do this and walks out of the room. it's to me it's the moment when she realizes he is an irredeemable monster when it comes to this sort of thing. But now and, and I think Maggie can speak to this. I have heard time and again from people who spend time with Trump that when he's in his plane leaving an event, he's watching on TV coverage of the event he doesn't want, the attention to end. Is that true?
0: Yes. And it's also um, I I think it's it isn't just the not wanting the attention to end. It's that it's a feedback loop. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? In other words, that that puts it on a continuum that I don't think it's really in. I do think they're very similar, though. And I was just thinking about what you were saying about that Huma scene. I totally agree with you. She just realized, you know, this is a sickness and I can't be part of this. One of the things about covering Trump is that he expects you to sort of buy into his view of how he wants to see himself. So, one of the things he constantly attacks us for on coverage is if you write anything that I wouldn't even say was critical, but was just factual, and so, but wasn't completely complimentary to him, he will get very angry. He will call you and berate you. He will say, This wasn't true. This person's skewed. They're biased. They're failing New York Times, and blah, blah, blah. But there's a degree to which you have to, he expects you to buy into the self assessment. And I do think that was true for Weiner in that moment as he was watching himself over and over again. Who cares it's all so funny. I mean that was his view not mine, but as as he's sitting there in that scene in the in the documentary he was giggling. Like he was he was he was giddy. It was like yeah. a school kid. And at one point, Huma says something to the effect of, "Why are you doing this?" Right. And he said, "What am I supposed to do?" Like, and- well,
2: he, he had. I mean, he was being mortified anew yes. on camera, but he was weathering it well. Yes. And like a real narcissist, he could find a way to say, "Hey, look at how well I'm doing in yes. context." Yes. I'm sorry. The context is so insulting yes. and so belittling. There's no doing well. Yes. Okay, hold that thought. We'll be right back.
3: In the case of Anthony Weiner, he has inevitably drawn into all of this a spouse, a spouse who appeared in that documentary, a spouse who works for Hillary Clinton, and as we saw in that movie, he did not seem capable of being all that attentive to what would normally be like the spousal inclination to tend to a spouse and their needs and their career and their emotions. There
0: were a couple of moments like that. Um, the only moment where he expressed any sympathy about Huma in that movie was when they were going to his election night event and it became clear that Sidney Leathers was you know, sort of lying in wait and he said to Huma, go home um, after initially saying she should be there. That was pretty late in the game yeah. when he did that. The only person in terms of Donald Trump who I have ever heard him express sort of concern about or empathy for or worry about how they might perceive something is his wife Melania. Trump once said something to me about something that got written involving his wife and he said, think about how Melania felt. Mm. And I've literally never heard him say that in any other context.
2: I mean, that's reassuring because the larger point here is when people are running for office, especially president, but any office, they're basically saying... I am able to care about and respond That's right. to your concerns. That's right. right, I'm a vessel for your concerns and I'm someone who can understand or try to understand your lives and act on that understanding to make your lives better. And if we have men and women, and in this case I think just we've really seen men so far, Running for these offices who cannot see beyond their own needs and their own egos, I mean, that is extraordinarily disturbing. And it brings us back to the question of have we created a context where we're bringing too many of those people into the arena with a quality that, as I said before, I think is disqualifying.
0: Well, we're, we're rewarding that behavior to some extent, right? I mean, we are rewarding the high performers. And to your question of sort of why don't we focus on the drier people, there is a degree to which uh, the culture is now saying to people who entertain everybody else, yeah. you know, this is what's good, this is what we need, because as right. you said, it gets repackaged as truth and authenticity.
2: But, and we've been talking about who's attracted. Let me give you an example of someone who's repelled, a very good example
3: that I think rounds this out. Mitch Daniels. The former governor of Indiana whose wife had an extramarital affair. Left him and, and their, left him and their children. And left the kids. They had four, and then they had four, four children yeah. that came back and yeah. she came back. Right. Whether you That's agree right. with
2: his policies or not, this is someone who, especially in the current context, is seen as an extremely responsible Republican, someone who's at instances of great moderation, someone who now is president of Purdue University, um, is doing truly extraordinary things, and would be the kind of Republican leader that I think a lot of voters would like to consider and would actually play very well in the center and in the middle. He took a pass on all of this in part because he had a slightly messy family history. Yes. And for him, the reward of all the attention didn't equal the downside of all the attention.
0: In another context, a lot of men who had had messy personal lives right. would still run. Right. He didn't want to expose right. his family to this and it wasn't So if he were more of a narcissist yes, he would, would, I he would agree say, screw with that. I mean,
2: I In this case, that. his family said, don't do this to us. Yes. Um, and it speaks so well of him that, he that that was a more compelling message than whatever was going to come in terms of arena crowds and applause. That's right. So how do we construct a system where someone who has that set of values
3: remains in the game? Game. I want to give both of you an assignment: fix our politics. Tell me how you make our politics more capable of embracing the kind of people who don't possess the two qualities we've built this entire podcast around.
0: I don't think there is a quick fix, but I would certainly tell you what I think the immediate first step would be: would be ending Twitter as a <laughs> as a political tool. Uh, I, I mean, I don't mean that because of Anthony Weiner or his pictures or anything like that, or or Trump's you know tweets about whomever he's attacking at a certain moment, I think Twitter is toxic, and the desire to beat down and, and erode and undermine is so incredibly,
2: incredibly deep. I agree with that entirely. The other thing I think that could be done, that should be done, it won't be done, because it would, it would require a kind of coordinated effort that's not going to happen. But I think if we in the media would stop covering these campaigns and candidates so soon. We are doing more and more political coverage, a smaller and smaller fraction of which is devoted to what candidates are proposing, to what they're saying they do, and to what their records and histories suggest about whether we can trust them on their word. And we're doing more and more about their personal characteristics and their personal lives. Now, I am not one of those people who thinks that's irrelevant. It can be a very, very interesting mirror of who they are. But as we burrow deeper and deeper and deeper into those lives, I think we scare the bejesus out of people who aren't utter narcissists and think is going through all of that worth having a position in government and trying to do some good.
3: Is there something in between this over-the-top quality that we've diagnosed here and this sleep-inducing awfulness on the other end that we really want? Sure. I I,
0: I think our last two presidents, Barack Obama and George W. Bush, actually both shared that, I mean, in different ways. George W. Bush uh, and Barack Obama have a, a single common thread, which is that neither of them is particularly needy. Um, they actually are pretty comfortable in their own skin. That is not the same as not being self-centered. And narcissism is a whole different clinical definition. I I think that both of them have elements of narcissism, but I don't think that they are at all on either end of the spectrum that we have seen. And I'm not saying that they are either similar as presidents or as intellects or as thinkers or as people, but I do think that that is something that they share.
3: As it happens, we are blessed with the presence of someone who wrote a book about George W. Bush. Well, I... I I
2: was very interested to hear you say that because I think you're right, but what I I was thinking as Maggie was talking was neither one of them is on the scale of, of the politicians we're talking about particularly needy. But they're both something else that I think everyone who gets this far is. They're both arrogant. Yes. But one of the things that has struck me in sort of watching and meeting, I mean, I've talked with both, I mean, very extensively George W. Bush. I've met Barack Obama and talked with him a couple times. One of the interesting things is every single one of these men, and so far the presidency has been all men, is remarkably arrogant. But you learn how many different stripes of arrogance there are. Mm. So George Bush was convinced always that he had a gut an instinct that was better than anybody else's, mm-hmm. right? Barack Obama, I think, is, is more classically convinced that he's the smartest person in the room. But what you learn in watching them and in contemplating the difference between them and, say, Donald Trump or Anthony Weiner is you can have the necessary arrogance to pursue the highest office in the land and to occupy it and deal with all of the incoming crap you know, that you have to endure. You can have that without having a degree of neediness that is
0: extraordinarily corrosive and undermining. I think that's dead on and and very, very true. Uh, Coupled also uh, with a desire to have some sort of inner sanctum space, right? I think that I think that George W. Bush uh, and Barack Obama don't need to have a camera on them at all times. Don't need attention at all times. Actually, that's do, so interesting. Do value that's so interesting. I mean, don't even but, want it sometimes. No, but
2: that's right? really really interesting. Bush was so insistent on a certain amount of vacation. Yep. As interestingly is Obama. Yep. he was so insistent on that. I'm gonna use a kind of popular term in the wrong way, the safe space yes. of his Crawford ranch, That's right? right? Um, Barack Obama, <laughs> we read that terrific story by our colleague Michael Shear about his time at night yes. and how sacrosanct that is to him. I actually think that speaks to the fundamental psychological healthiness yes. of those two men. I don't think Donald Trump has or wants that space. I don't think Anthony Weiner has or wants that space. I agree with that. Um, I think we should think about that going forward.
0: I
3: agree with that. There is this weird upside of being so available and w- and loving the camera. And I think about when I called Anthony Weiner when he was thinking of running for mayor after everything. Mm-hmm. And everyone said, oh, he's never going to run. And he got on the phone and talked about this consulting business that he was developing without any reservations, talked about clients, talked about how good he was at it, and really submitted himself to a tremendous amount of scrutiny because he, he liked the way it sounded talking about it. Right. So the flip side of that is a candidate who has zero desire to talk about this, shuts down such inquiries, doesn't want to let in the sunlight, I do think a, maybe a teeny bit of credit ought to be thrown to those, maybe we're calling them narcissists in this episode, who do let us in, let us talk to them. Let the public see wait, wait, them. Wait, wait. I'm asking.
2: Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, I when you're saying it, it sounds reasonable. But let us remember, if they were really letting us in, in a meaningful <laughs> exactly. way, Trump has not released his tax returns. That's right. Fair. So he's a narcissist entirely on his own terms. Correct. The attention
0: is all on his terms. This is what I was trying to say about how he expects you to buy into his self-world view, which I said earlier. One of the things that he does that has been, I have said to people at any number of points during the last 14 months, I feel like I am taking crazy pills. I will write what he says. I will quote him. He will say, that's not what I said. The Times misquoted me, XYZ. And you almost don't know what to do with it because it's literally like saying, how are we going to get to, uh, I want to go to Paris or by bus. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. That is not being open.
2: Yes, it would be great to say, oh, narcissists at least come with accessibility if the accessibility was meaningful. And when you release the kind of physician's note that he did, and when you refuse to release your tax returns, that is not an accessibility that's a lovely fruit of his narcissism. The
0: problem with all of this, and again, this gets me back to what happens next year when we do have a president and if again if the polls hold it will be a president, second president Clinton is that her campaign has used his inaccessibility on these things, his lack of disclosure and transparency as almost a cover of darkness to not do certain things themselves. So neither candidate still, neither nominee has a protective pool of reporters traveling with them on the plane. She is about to have one but it's the latest date that that has happened after a convention I think ever. Frank I want to end
3: by reading something from your recent column. You wrote that we have, quote, constructed a politics with such bright invasive lights that those who find it more attractive than repulsive include an unhealthy number of insecure exhibitionists out for affirmation above all else. Is that the future of the American presidency, those people? I
2: think we have and are going to continue to have for a while too many of those people in government. I think they're some of the people who are going to make compromise impossible and are going to kind of cheapen the whole thing. I don't think it's the future of the presidency, um, but I worry that we're not going to have as robust a menu of plausible presidential candidates to choose from, because I think it is going to be the future of the lion share of people attracted. I mean, we all talked about, oh, 17 Republican candidates. Wow, what, a, <laughs> what an embarrassment of riches. It was more an embarrassment than an embarrassment of riches. Um, we'll attract a lot of candidates, but I worry that not enough of them will be the right kind that will be left. Let us not forget, Something that's been written incessantly and can't be written enough about this election cycle, which is we are looking at two candidates who, in and of themselves and them combined, are more disliked as options for president than any of the people who preceded them. That's not an accident And that's not something that's not a just kind of aberration to be dismissed. We have to continue to ask questions about how we got
0: there. I agree with Frank. I I don't like making predictions. We do not know what's going to happen. But if things continue on the trajectory they're on right now, Hillary Clinton will win. uh, And she will win with a a pretty wide electoral vote landslide. Hillary Clinton is on the opposite extreme of the politicians that we've been talking about in Donald Trump and Anthony Weiner. She, this whole email controversy that she has uh, been dogged by for the last 14 months was very much, by, uh, by all accounts of people who are close to her, the product of not wanting eyes on her, not wanting people picking through her her discussions. She has never enjoyed that kind of thing, and some of it is certainly reactive. She and her husband have been through innumerable investigations. Their friends have you know, been made bankrupt by legal fees and so forth. But I don't know what it means in terms of having a president who is going to be so on the opposite extreme in that respect. And then I don't know. I mean, Trump has so dominated our daily discourse and has helped add to this tremendously already partisan, but now toxically partisan environment. I don't know what it looks like when he is not here in three months, assuming he loses.
3: Frank, Maggie, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's been too long since we called our friend at the Upshot, Nate Cohn, to talk about the numbers behind this election. Nate, what's our number?
1: number is 20. Twenty-what? Percent of voters who currently say they are supporting one of the two third-party candidates, Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, or who say they're undecided. That
3: seems really high.
1: It is really high. In fact, it's about twice as high as it was at this time four years ago, and it's about the highest since 1996, the last time Ross Perot was the race.
3: So are we in Ross Perot territory? And I ask that because people think of that as a really decisive moment for a third-party candidate where it may have tipped the scales.
1: So my instinct is no. And the reason is because I think that a lot of people who are choosing them are only doing so because they're given the option by pollsters. They're not really people they know about necessarily. And my instinct is that a lot of the people who are selecting them in the polls are people who are disgusted with both the candidates. And if they continue to feel this way, probably just won't vote. But if you had to ask, how does someone as flawed as Donald Trump end up winning this race? I think that's a plausible way. it
3: And then you might be looking at another Ralph Nader situation. Mm -hmm. And Ralph Nader will tell you, don't blame me if you're inclined to blame him for anything, because he simply earned the votes.
1: Well, I think there is some truth there that, you know, this is really a lot more about Hillary Clinton than it is about Jill Stein or Gary Johnson. You know, they're not running strong, vigorous campaigns. They're not holding huge rallies like Ralph Nader was able to hold at the end of his race. This is is about Hillary Clinton's problems, not Jill Stein taking votes from her.
3: Right. They are receptacles of rejection. I think that's right. Nate, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. That's it for this episode of The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. You know, there's another category of people accused of being narcissistic. They're called podcast hosts. We'll see you back here on Tuesday.